go ahead and uh, start back up again. Um, what I want to do today, obviously, I was on vacation last week, um, and then the week before that, we didn't get finished with uh, part three of a church that treasures Christ, not money. So what I want to do today is, is kind of get everybody back on the same page for what we've been talking about. We took some time last week, for those of you that were here, to break up into some discussion groups. We uh, discussed some different application questions for things that we've been learning. And um, so I want to I recap lesson one, lesson two, and then the first part of lesson three that we've already covered. And then wrap up today by giving you the remaining notes for um, lesson three. So if you brought your notes from two weeks ago, then you can fill in those blanks. If not, I've included the notes at the bottom of this sheet so you can take those home if you're keeping up with the notes. No, I emailed all the lessons out. Yes. I'll send them to you. Before I went on vacation, I emailed them. Yeah, I didn't attach it to the email, and then I sent it out just as the attachment. Maybe I took you off the email list. I'll send you another copy. All right, so recapping real quick, lesson one, lesson two, and the first part of lesson three. What I want to do today is I want to give you some some brief summary statements from each one of those lessons. I haven't included that in your notes, but I'm just going to give you some some brief summary statements to kind of refresh your memory about what we talked about. And then I've given you some application statements and some application questions for you to personally reflect on. Because here's the thing. We can come here every week and we can talk about money and we can read scripture and we can all verbally affirm that, yes, we should give our money away. Yes, We should use money for God's glory. Yes, we should not love the things of the world. But if we're not careful, we'll simply come, we'll hear, we'll affirm it, and then we'll leave, and we just won't ever do anything with it. We won't ever make any changes with our money. And so, for this teaching time to be effective, we have got to be heavy on application. We examine what Scripture says. But then we take it and we have to figure out how to apply it in our life. The trick is that the application is going to vary for each one of you. That's the tricky part, is that we can't just sit down and have application day and, and me tell you exactly what you need to do with your money. Because we've all got different amounts of money. We've all got a different amount of money. We've all got different bills. We've all got different living situations. Some of us have more money than others that we can do stuff with. So the application is going to be different. That's where the burden of responsibility falls on you personally. To take the time to sit down, to evaluate where your money is going, and then to make biblical decisions about where it needs to start going. Okay? So just kind of recapping what we looked at in lesson one. We talked about a true disciple of Christ sees money differently. A true disciple of Christ sees money differently. If you can't let go of money, you can't come to Christ. We said that in week one. If you cannot let go of money, you cannot come to Christ. Jesus gave us the illustration of the rich young man who came to Jesus and said, What must I do to get eternal life? Jesus tells him, Sell everything, come follow me. The rich guy walks away because he owned a lot of stuff. And Jesus teaches his disciples and says, you can't love the world and me. It's just not possible. We then said, if you truly come to Christ, you do let go of money. And we see that Jesus tells his disciples it's virtually impossible for a rich man to come to Christ. He's got too much reason to live for this world. But then Jesus, the the gospel of Luke Follows up that account of impossible for a rich man to come to Christ by giving us the story of Zacchaeus. A rich man who comes to Christ. A rich man who the Holy Spirit truly works on, truly convicts. He surrenders everything, comes to Christ, relinquishes his rights to his money, to his stuff, begins to give it away. Jesus says salvation has come to your house. So if you truly come to Christ, you let go of money. And then lastly in lesson one... 
Following Christ means rejecting the temporal future for the eternal future. When we truly come to Christ, we stop thinking about 40 years from now. We stop thinking about 50 years from now, 60 years from now. And we start thinking about 10,000 years from now. That's the long-term investment we're looking for. We stop thinking about 50, 60 years from now and we start thinking about 10,000 years from now. We see this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus is talking and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We then have the story of the guy who stores up all his money in his barns. Jesus or God basically says to him, You fool, your soul has been required of you tonight. This, this, rich, this, this amount of riches that you have built up mean nothing for you. That they, they, they will serve you no purpose in the eternal life. You have, you have forfeited eternity for now. Just take care, be on guard against all covetousness. And then 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So some application from lesson one. Make sure you have left this world behind and truly grab hold of Christ. Every single one of us has a responsibility to examine our faith, to make sure that we're really in the faith. To make sure as we read these passages about people who held on to their money, that we're not guilty of being those people. Okay? I don't want to make you doubt your salvation. I don't want to make you question your salvation. But every time we come to Scripture, it ought to make you examine your salvation. Examine it and you ought to be assured of your salvation through Scripture. And part of the assurance of salvation, salvation comes from us seeing that people who truly follow Christ don't love the world. And we ought to be able to examine our life and see that we don't love the world. And that provides assurance that we truly came to Christ. You have a responsibility to make sure that you're not one of these people who verbally says I've come to Christ, but still loves money. Because scripture says you cannot serve both. You cannot serve both. Second application, be on guard against covetousness. Why should we be on guard against covetousness? Because Jesus tells us to be on guard against covetousness. He tells his disciples, the people that were closest to him, to guard themselves against covetousness. Leaving this world behind doesn't exempt you from the allurement to go back. There's still that allure to go back to the world that exists for us. We have to fight against it. We have to guard against it. Because if we're not careful, we will fall into a state of being covetousness. We will, we will covet things that we do not have. We will, we will be enticed by the things of this world again. And then the last application is to use your state of plenty or your state of need to show that Jesus is better than both. You'll remember the prayer of the guy in Proverbs 37-9 who says, God, don't give me too much where I forget about you. Don't give me too little where I end up stealing and it makes you look bad. Give me exactly what I need. Don't give me too much because I'm not sure I can handle too much. I'm afraid that I'll forget where it comes from and I'll begin to live for this world. Don't give me too little to where I'm starving and my basic needs aren't met and I have to steal them and it makes it look like you can't provide for me. Give me just enough. For us, the application is that we use whatever state we're in. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 10 through 13 that his... His secret is that he's learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether he has a lot or a little, his, his demeanor is the same. And when I taught him this at Mount Gilead, I said, that ought, that ought to blow our minds. That Paul's basically saying, if I win the lottery, or if I found out I just lost my job, my contentment level is the same. You walk in and tell me you just inherited a million dollars, he says, I'm still the same guy. I'm still content with what I have. You tell me that I just lost my job, I'm still content. My joy doesn't get affected by how much money I have. 
We use our state of plenty or our state of need to reflect glory to Christ, whichever one we're in at the time. Some application questions. I give you four, but I want to highlight two right now and maybe get some feedback from you real quick. What are some practical ways that we could guard against covetousness? What are some practical ways that we could guard against covetousness? Why should we think about that? Again, because Jesus says guard against covetousness. So how do we apply that? What are some things that we could do? And then this always helps me when I'm thinking through like how to apply scripture. What are some tangible ways that my life in the area of money would look different if I loved the world more than Jesus? Because I would venture to say if we all stood up here right now, none of us would say I love the world more than Jesus. Most of us probably aren't going to own up to being guilty of 1 John 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. For me, it helps for me to think about, okay, what would my life have to look like for me to be guilty of loving the world? If I want to say that I don't love the world right now, what would it have to look like for me to be guilty of it? Thoughts on that? What, what, what are some things that we could do to guard against covetousness? Or what are some ways that maybe your life would look different if you were guilty of loving the world? Because sometimes we default into thinking that, okay, well, I don't, get, I don't go out and get drunk and I don't have sex outside of marriage, so I don't love the world. Like, sometimes we default into thinking some of the basic things that are called out in Scripture, because we don't do those things, we're not, we're not guilty. So what are some ways that, that we could guard against covetousness as a church? Or what are some ways that, that we could come up with that our life would, would look different if we were guilty of loving the world? Any thoughts on that? Uh-huh. Yeah, keeping a proper perspective on how long we would even have the things that sometimes we desire to have so much that, uh, for, for the most part, a lot of the things that we own are going to be in the trash can 15 years from now. So keeping a proper perspective on the, the length of life that some of these possessions would have for us. What else? For some people, it may mean canceling uh, subscriptions that, that come in the mail that are meant to entice you to buy stuff that you don't need. For some of us, we get, we get online uh, stuff sent to our emails or just uh, magazines and, and order, um, order magazines sent to our house that we can just browse through and, and think about things that we don't have. For some of us, it, it would mean eliminating some of those things. You know, getting rid of... of, of of outdoor magazines or um, clothing magazines that come to our house that entice us to make us think, ah, gosh, I, I need the newest stuff. And that, that, I, don't, I don't want that to sound legalistic, like, hey, you can't get those things in your mail. Some people can handle that just fine. They look through it and they never, they never splurge and, and spend money that they don't have on that type of stuff. But some people get into some serious credit card debt because they're constantly scanning the card for stuff that they're enticed to buy, stuff that they don't need. That may be one way for, for you personally to guard against covetousness, is that you eliminate opportunity to covet things that you don't have. Other thoughts on how to guard against covetousness or how your life would look different if you were in love with the world. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah, just really striving to practice contentment with what you do have. Maybe even spending time focusing on the goodness of what you do have in the sense that it accomplishes what you needed to accomplish. That maybe the newest thing that's come out accomplishes exactly what you've already got. 
um, and fighting that resist, resisting and fighting that idea of thinking that an upgrade is needed when, when really it's not, is something that we just conjure up in our mind. against covetousness, parents have a, have a much bigger responsibility because they're also responsible to train and teach children who are born into sin, born enemies of God, not to covet. And there's, there's obviously a, a time in their life where they're raising kids that aren't safe. I mean, hopefully it becomes easier once the Holy Spirit indwells children, but there's obviously a time period where there's no Holy Spirit there to assist what you're trying to teach. And certainly the attitude of covetousness is going to be prevalent in kids. And it only gets compounded when, when your kids have to see other kids whose parents aren't seeking to glorify God with their money. They're going to invest a lot more money in what their kids want. And now your kids want to know why can't we have this. It's an unbelievable responsibility to try to teach kids not to covet and to guard against covetousness, especially before they have the Holy Spirit assisting in that teaching. Um, so definitely, definitely, uh, and, and I think the things that you bring up are an excellent way to to begin uh, exposing your kids to what they have and what other people still need. I know several families that, that sponsor children like that and are able to reinforce to their kids when their kids want something and are able to use by name, you know, as opposed to just donating to an organization, it's, hey, so-and-so, you know, we pray for her, we talk about her often, so-and-so doesn't have this. So-and-so doesn't have what you already have. And I think that can be a great tool to teach, because they're, they're used to seeing kids that, that have more than them. They don't often see kids that have less than them. But then that's also true for us as adults, that the kids that we're sponsoring, the parents that they come from, have far less than us as well, too. teach your kids the value of money and be able to teach them what things cost. Because I know for me, I was kind of blown away when I started driving my car for the very first time at the, at the cost of what it takes to put gas in the car. I didn't have a good understanding of the value of money um, a lot of times when I was growing up. And I think that the earlier we can incorporate that into the lives of our children, the easier it is for them as they get older to, to guard against covetousness as well. All right. I would encourage you to take those two questions home to maybe think through as a family, as an individual, what that means for your life. Because I can honestly tell you right now, um, I'm, try, I'm beginning to try to figure out what does it look like, what would it have to look like for me and Lauren to be guilty of loving the world? Because I want to make sure that we're not already guilty of that. 
Like, I want to, to be able to see what it would look like so that I stay away from what that is and continue to pursue loving Christ more than the world. I just don't want to be guilty of having blinders on and, and blinding myself to the fact that I, I do love the world. I don't want to be guilty of just assuming that I don't. I want to know what it would look like to love the world for me personally to, to know that I'm not doing that. All right, let's see a couple of statements real quick. Uh, the issue is not prosperity or poverty, but how we steward our money in a worshipful way. So we don't need to go the stretch of thinking that prosperity theology where God blesses us if we give. Like the goal for us in this life is not to get rich. But I've also tried to stress to you because I can see a greater temptation within this church for us to develop a poverty theology mindset of if we've got money, then we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. That it would be a wrong mindset to think that we're supposed to make ourselves miserable in life. Scripture promises that we will suffer, but it does not tell us to force ourselves to suffer. It doesn't tell us to put ourselves into a state of suffering. We're to accept suffering as it comes. We're not necessarily to go looking for reasons to suffer or ways to cause ourselves to suffer. It's not that we intentionally give our money away to where we're now not able to pay for our house. You know, and we don't give in such a way to try to test God to see, okay, I know I'm supposed to spend this money on my mortgage this month, but I'm going to actually give it away and see if God, who is the all provider, will bring this money back in from a different avenue. And we're supposed to be smart with our money, and we're not supposed to make ourselves suffer or look for ways for God to have to come through. We're to be smart and to be good stewards. Second Corinthians 9, 7 talks about us not giving to meet a legalistic standard, but to give cheerfully and to give willingly. We use money wisely, not as a way to earn salvation, maintain salvation, or add to our salvation. We don't use money to, to save ourselves. It's not that we give away money to earn salvation. And we don't give away money to keep our salvation. We don't give away money to add to our salvation. It's a response to truly being saved. And then I stressed a couple weeks ago that the commands about money are designed for us to experience life, not earn justification. We don't earn our salvation by giving money. Instead, John 10.10 says that Jesus came to give us the abundant life. Which means there's some truth in there that by giving our money away, it's actually the best life that we can have here. To hoard our money, to hang on to our money, is not the way to enjoy the way that God has created things to function. He's created us to be generous and to share and to give to those that are in need. He established that theoretically with the children of Israel. He gave them strict commands about taking care of the poor. They, for the most part, resisted those commands, and we see that the detriment that it caused within their society just by reading through the Old Testament. We also said that God doesn't need money. He already owns it all. And a disciple doesn't rely on money. He has a father who provides for him. Old Testament, Psalm 24, 1, Psalm 50, 10 through 12, it's all about God saying, hey, I own everything. It all belongs to me. He even makes a statement, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even need to tell you because I can feed myself. I can take care of myself. I don't need this church's money, God is saying. And as disciples of Jesus, we don't rely on money when we have a father who provides what we need. We don't rely on money like a lost person. In um, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. First Timothy 6, verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, these with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul says, great gain if you simply pursue being godly and you pursue being content. Those are the two things we pursue. Being godly, we pursue sanctification, and we pursue being content with what God has given us. Why? Well, we didn't bring anything into the world, and we ain't taking anything with us. Food and clothing is really all we need. 
Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, senseless and harmful desires that cause people ruin and destruction. Next, following Christ guarantees our eternal needs will be met even if our temporary wants are not. Following Christ guarantees that our eternal needs are met even if our temporary wants are not. God really never promises that you will have enough food to eat. How do we know that? There are Christians around the world that are starving to death today. God doesn't put himself into a position where he has to give you food every day. He doesn't have to give you protection every day. There are people around the world that are Christians that will die today for their faith. But what we do have promise from Scripture is that we will have our eternal needs met. We will have our eternal needs met. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So as money leaves us, Christ never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And then we look at Revelation 19, 6 through 9, where we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will eat with Christ for eternity, and we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the very clothing that we need for eternity, His perfection. So we, we don't have it promised in Scripture that our, our, temporal, our temporal needs and wants will be met. What we do have promised in Scripture is that our eternal needs will be met. Contentment with what we have is better than the state of having more. And then lastly, the most important things we would ever need to buy have already been given to us freely. You need to let this sink into your mind. We, we talked about it before, but you need to drill into your mind that the most important things... The most important things that you could ever buy have already been given to you freely. The things that this world would give anything to buy are the very things that are free. We have a need to be good enough. You examine any other world religion and that world religion will teach you that you have to do enough good to get into heaven. You have to do enough good to get into heaven. And there have been times in history where, where those religious organizations have resorted to selling that to people. Because that, that need to be good enough is so ingrained in us that we'll give money to buy it if possible. And I really think that's what the rich man came to Jesus to do. What do I have to do? Can I, is, is it possible for me to buy it? And Jesus pretty much communicates it's too expensive for you. You can't buy it. We need to be good enough. Christ has accomplished that for us. I need to be forgiven. Christ has already given that to us freely. I need someone to understand me. Every one of us has a desire to be understood, to be known. And we worship and serve a God who, knew, who knows every intricate detail of our life. I need things to start going my way. That's how the world thinks. The world wants to catch a break. The world loves for, for things to go their way. I just need to catch a break. I need things to start going my way. As a Christian, we have a promise to us in Romans 8.28 that every single thing in our life already works for our good. We already have everything going our way. And it's been given to us freely. I need, I need to have my reasons to worry to go away. I need the reasons that I worry to be removed. We've been told in Philippians that we don't have any reason to worry or to be anxious because we have a God who takes care of us. And I need to avoid death for as long as I can. You can't imagine the people that would line up to purchase eternal life, to purchase the fountain of youth, to purchase the ability to not grow old and die. Why? Because there's a fear of death. There's a fear of death that exists in all of us that Jesus came to destroy. That fear of death, we're told, is removed in the book of Hebrews because Christ has conquered death with his own death. He has freed us from that fear of death. As Christians, we have a hope of eternal life. The application. Let go of your right to unnecessary luxuries for the sake of others' needs. Secondly, determine what it means to be generous for you. 
First Timothy six, eighteen through nineteen. First Timothy six, eighteen through nineteen. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Paul tells us we're to do good, we're to be rich in good works, we're to be generous and ready to share. What does being generous mean for you? We're to fight to avoid loving money. We're to fight loving money. Why? Catch this. Make sure you catch this. If you do not, and I don't want to confuse you here, so I'm going to explain it twice at least. If you do not guard against covetousness, if you do not fight to not love money, you may not go to heaven. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Listen to verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Make sure you understand this. Throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, we are given warnings. We are given warnings not to fall away from the faith. We are also given assurance that if we're truly a Christian, we won't fall away from the faith. So a Christian doesn't have to fear losing their salvation. But part of the way a Christian doesn't lose their salvation is that a Christian responds to the warnings in Scripture. That's the way that God keeps us saved in a sense. He built in these warnings that keep us from falling away from the faith. Does that make sense? If you're saved, you will not lose your salvation. But part of the way that you don't lose your salvation is that you yield to the warnings in Scripture. You don't love money. You guard yourself against covetousness. Part of the way that Christians and non-Christians get weeded out, they get weeded out because people that really aren't Christians start to love money again and they fall away. So as a church of true Christians, we guard ourselves against covetousness because it's a sign that we're truly saved. Does that make sense? We yield to this warning so that we don't fall away. Application questions. Would people call what I do with my money being generous? I want you to think about that question. If an outsider were to sit down, outsider sits down and says, Adam, Philip, Jason, Ben, open up your, your bank account. I want to see your transactions for the past year. I want to see where your money went, where it came from, and then I want to write up a report about what 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 I've seen. Would an outsider look at where your money goes and describe you as generous? Would they describe you as generous? I I told you that it would take $5 a person to pay for the park every week. You bringing $5 every week is not what I would use to describe as a generous church. That's not generous. That, that, that's, that's, just doing, that's just doing bare minimum. Because I've done the calculations. I've done the math. For those of you that have jobs, and some of you may not have a job, those of you that have jobs, I've done the math. If you're making minimum wage, minimum wage, and working 20 hours a week, 15 hours a week, which I would say is what a lot of you are getting at least, 15, 20 hours a week. Those of you that are making the bare minimum income in this church, if you were to just give 10%, that would be $10 a week. That would be $10 a week. So, so for all of us to pitch in $5 to pay for the park, that's not, that's not a generous church. What does it look like for you to be generous? What would it take for you to give for someone, especially a lost person, to look and say, man, that's, that's generous. Like, you're a generous person. And think about it. Lost people give their money away, too. Like, don't think for a second that only Christians give their money away. Don't fall into this trap of thinking, oh, if they're a lost person, they just keep all their money because they're selfish. I've volunteered with the Salvation Army before. 
And I've rang the bell and I've seen plenty of people drop in money. And there's no way every one of them that drop in money is a Christian. There, there, there's something built into even lost people where they know they're supposed to be generous and meet other people's needs. And they will do that. They will give money to organizations. So as Christians, we have to rise above the natural human tendency to take care of people to where somebody would look at us and say, I mean, you're really generous. Like, what you do with your money really doesn't make sense to me. How can you give that kind of money away and get no return from it? What would it take for someone to look at your life and be and, and, and describe you as being generous? That, that's what I want for my life. I don't want someone to look at my bank account and say, yeah, I mean, he gives some money away. He does what he's probably supposed to do. He gives us $5 a week to pay for the part. No, I want someone to look at my bank account and say, is that a mistake right there? Or is that really the amount of money that just left on that transaction to go there? I want somebody to look at my bank account and say, wow, like, you're really, you're, you're generous. Like, you give, you give above and beyond what I would even expect a person to do. That's what we're called to as Christians. We're called to be generous. And the second question I give you, could I be open and honest with someone outside of my family about how I use money for accountability? Because for me, the application for how do I guard against covetousness, how do I guard against love and money, for me, I feel like I need someone who doesn't benefit from my money to look at my money and be able to affirm to me and hold me accountable that I'm using my money for God's glory. I don't know why it is, but money is the most private matter that we have a lot of times. I mean, for the most part, we don't know what each other makes in here. I mean, I have no idea what people's salaries are in here. We keep money as a very private matter. And I'm not saying that all of a sudden next week we need to come in and disclose what we make, disclose how much money we give to the church every week. We're not going to stand up and say, hey, I want to thank Cortland. She gave this amount of money this week. Everybody, Cortland's generous. Thank you, Cortland. I'm not suggesting that everybody in the world or everybody in this church needs to know what you're doing with your money. But I do want to suggest the possibility that you might want to consider letting at least one person in on what you're doing with your money for the sake of accountability. And that may sound completely radical. It's not radical for us to consider accountability for lust. I mean, that's not uncommon for us to hear about two guys meeting together to talk about accountability with sexual sins. And that's, for the most part, a private matter. I can tell you, I've never met anybody that's met with somebody for accountability about how they're using their money. But I can tell you right now that I want to find somebody to be that accountability partner for me because I want to guard myself against covetousness. I want to do it in such a way where I'm not like doing it for a pride sense where I go to somebody and say, <laughs> you're going to be really proud of what I've been doing with my money. You're going to pat me on the back and really call me generous. I know I need to find somebody who loves me, who can rebuke me, who can be honest with me and say, Dude, you have way too much in your savings account. Like, what are you doing? Like, you've got way more than the average person needs in their savings account. I need someone to be able to tell me, hey, you're not being generous enough with your money. So I want to throw that idea out to you to get you thinking about the possibility of, of opening yourself up to somebody who can hold you accountable to make sure that you're not loving money more than Jesus. All right, lesson three, we'll run through this stuff real quick and then we'll be done. A couple of things we already talked about. Giving is always the means for showing love in the Bible. And love is the evidence for true salvation. You read the New Testament, the New Testament says, you're truly saved if you love people. And you also read the New Testament and it says, you show love by giving of yourself, your time, your resources, your money. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his son. We see in 2 Corinthians 8 9, Jesus who was rich became poor so that we could become rich. We see in 1 John 3 that, that Jesus gave his life, we're to give our life for others. 
And then right after that, the application is that we are to, to give of our finances to take care of people. That's how we give our life away, is we give our money away. We will be held accountable for how we use our money, time, and resources. We see this in Matthew 25. There's accountability for how well we did as stewards of our money. We spent a lot of time two weeks ago saying that the gospel plan is the smartest thing we could spend our money on. It is going to be successful with or without us. There is no risk that it might fail. Make sure you get this. Investing in the gospel is not like investing in a condo building project down in Florida that may or may not be profitable. When you invest in the gospel, you've already got the book of Revelation that guarantees that it works. We know in the book of Revelation that people from every tribe and tongue are going to be present at the throne of Jesus at the end of the world, worshiping Him because they got saved. Jesus tells His disciples, go and make disciples of all nations so that the book of Revelation happens. There's comfort there because gospel doesn't rely on you. We saw that in the book of Esther. If Melissa chooses to make disciples or not, it doesn't affect the outcome of Revelation. Revelation is happening with or without Melissa. So God doesn't need us to make Revelation happen. He will make Revelation happen with or without us. It's our responsibility to get on board. It's the smartest thing that we can invest our money in. I guarantee you, Luke will not get to heaven and say, just... I should have kept some of that money back and done some things that I wanted to do with it. I just, I really spent, I gave too much to missionaries. I mean, that, that's not going to happen. There will never be a time that Luke stands in heaven and says, why did I give that much to missions? It's the only guaranteed thing that we won't regret giving to in heaven, I think. Giving for gospel purposes. It's the smartest thing that we can do. I gave you some practical ways that we invest in the gospel plan. We do it by investing in this local church. We pay our shepherds. This is awkward for me to tell you that scripture commands the idea of paying leadership in the church. And I've wrestled with this ever since we talked about planning this church. Would there be a salary involved or would there not be a salary involved? And I can tell you that I'm working very hard to where I do not rely on money from this church. But I also think it would be a mistake for this church not to give money to leadership because it's, it's, it's encouraged in Scripture. I think about John MacArthur. John MacArthur went to his elders and, and the finance committee one day and he said, I don't understand why you have determined to give me this big of a salary. I don't understand it. He says, you know that I don't need this kind of money. You know my belief about money. Why do you continue to give me raises and give me such a big salary that I do not need. And his elders looked back and told him, and, and they said, we need to know how to use excess money for God's glory. So we're giving it to you so we can see how you use it so we can mimic and follow your example. My desire is to be able to shepherd you as a church and show you how to use money for God's glory. Which means I want to be in a situation where if this church has given me money, it's not to pay my bills. It's being given to me so that I can then demonstrate to you how an individual family can use money for God's glory as an example to follow. We pay our shepherds, we pay our missionaries, and we trust our church to use money wisely. Acts, Acts 4 talks about people bringing their money to the church so that the church could distribute it to people who had needs. And then I encouraged you and said that in 1 Timothy 5, verses 4 through 16, there's a whole long list about how to take care of widows in the church and how to make sure they're legitimate widows that need money from the church. There's a strong burden on finance committees or elders or whoever's distributing money to make sure that when money leaves the church to go to an individual, it's a legitimate need. And we're to trust this church, and we're working hard to make sure that when you give money to this church, it goes to a legitimate need. That's why we labor over whether or not we should meet here or not. Is this a need? Is this worth it? All right, real quick, notice we didn't finish from lesson three. A disciple learns that the return on an eternal investment, the return that we get on an eternal investment, is far greater than the return on a long-term investment. 
Meaning investing in eternity gives us a better return than investing 50 years from now. Number one, we may not see a return on our investment here. These verses here, Matthew 5, 12, 19, 27 through 30, and Luke 14. I'd encourage you to read these on your own. We don't have time today. These all assure us that we will be repaid when Jesus comes back. You may give everything that you have here on this earth and never get a thank you, never get a payback, never get any type of reward here. But we're promised in Scripture, reward is coming when Jesus returns. Secondly, we must, not, we must see that earthly treasures multiply anxiety while eternal treasures give security. Jesus tells us, he says, invest in a place where moth doesn't touch your stuff, thieves can't touch your stuff, nothing can mess with it. Everything, and we've already said this, stuff we buy here will be in the dump 15 years from now, if it's not stolen before then. We're to invest our money in stuff that, that can't be touched. The more stuff you have here, the more you have to worry about moths and thieves taking it from you. The less stuff you have here, the more you can say, they break in, there ain't nothing here for them to take. I ain't got anything a thief would want. All my stuff's stored in heaven. And it's guarded and protected, an inheritance that does not fade, that's kept for me until Jesus Christ returns. Then lastly, think judgment day, not retirement day. Think judgment day, not retirement day. Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Jesus comes back, divides everybody up, sheep and goats. He says, lost people over here, you didn't use your money wisely. You didn't take care of people. People that are truly saved, you're over here. The way I know you're truly saved is you took care of people. You met people's needs. Some questions for you to think about as we leave. How much money do you currently give to either the church or people outside your immediate family? I know you probably discussed some of these last week. But we've got to answer these questions. And not just answer them, but do something with them. What criteria do you use to determine how much money you give away? What criteria do you use? Is there, is there a tangible method that you use to know how much money to give away? And then the last one that I really want you to start thinking about. Because this is necessary for us. As we make plans for how to use your money for God's glory. As we continue to discuss this, when we get done, what we would like to do, what we would like to do is for you to write down, write down how much money you see yourself being able to give to this church. We're gonna, we're gonna, we want to be able to show you a budget. We want to be able to show you plans and desires that we have for this world. But in order to do that, we need to know what kind of money we're dealing with. And we want to hold you accountable. We want to hold you accountable. We're not asking for names. We're not asking for anything that identifies who you are. But what we would like to do is have you be able to submit to us an amount that you plan to be able to give monthly. What that requires of you is for you to sit down and look at how you're spending your money. We're not just doing this so we know how much is going to come in. We're doing this as a means of application for you to be diligent and wise to sit down with your money and think through, where's it going? And how can I commit to giving to the local church like I'm commanded to do? So I want you over the next few weeks to sit down. Individuals, you look at your, your, your income. Families, discuss it together. What are we going to be able to commit to this church? So this church can use money for God's glory. Alright? Questions or thoughts about any of that? Questions or thoughts about that? Alright, we've seen how a disciple sees money differently. A uh, disciple needs it differently. Disciple invests it differently. Next week we'll see how a disciple uses it differently. And I'll give you some practical ways in Scripture about how you personally can begin to use your money. And I'll, and I'll give you a little bit of insight real quick on the budget. What we're trying to do 
is structure our budget in such a way to where you will give a portion of your money to this church, but this church by no means needs all of your money to function. Because what we want you to do is to learn to be good stewards of your money by keeping some of what you would normally give to a church back in your own hands and you personally use it for God's glory. Sometimes I'm afraid it's a cop-out to just give money to the church and say, got that done, I don't have any responsibility now throughout the rest of the week to do anything for God's glory. The rest of my money for this week is mine. We're doing whatever we want to as a family with it. We want you to give and to give faithfully to this church, but we also want you to keep some of that back and continue to use it in your context, your environment, as you see needs around you. As you hear about someone at work that, that has a need in their family, that you personally can meet that need. That you personally can, can demonstrate that Jesus is better than money as you give to those people that you meet that have needs. And we'll reveal more of that and more of our heart and desire behind that type of a budget in the coming weeks. Alright, let's pray. God, I thank you for the time that we've had together this morning. God, I thank you that we're able to meet here. God, I know that you have big plans for this church. I know we're not a big church. I know we don't have all the things that other churches can offer right now. But God, we have an intense desire to, to make disciples of all nations. And that starts with us making disciples here. And so, God, I pray that each one of these individuals will begin to, to not just um, take in this food from your word, but that they would begin to digest it. That spiritually they would begin to reap the benefits and the, uh, the nutrients that come from eating your word. And that, God, they begin to use it. They begin to do something with it. God, I pray that, that we would be um, disciplined enough to sit down and say, okay, I've got to set aside some time to look at how I'm using my money. I need to guard against covetousness. What does that look like? God, I pray that we would, we would be honest with ourselves enough to look and say, what would it look like for me to love the world so that I make sure I don't do that? And God, that you maybe even lead some of us to, to really seek accountability in this area. That we would take off the, the mindset that money is, is private and we would be open and honest with somebody in our life. Knowing that we have a, a, a flesh that wants to use money for our, own, for our own evil desires. And for our own just greed. God, that we'd be, we'd be humble enough to ask another brother or sister in Christ to help hold us accountable so that we wouldn't be lovers of money. God, I pray this week that we would be faithful to show others that we come in contact with that Jesus is better than money. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. We'll be meeting here next week. So, um, plan to be here again at 10. Uh, we're hoping, and I'll, I'll email you just to make sure, we're, we're hoping that the, the, the city's okay with us getting in at 9.30 so we can start at 10. We'll let you know for sure the earliest you can show up. We're hoping that can be 9.30, start at 10, just like we did today. If you've got money to give today, you can drop it up here in the laundry basket. Um, it's big enough, hopefully, to hold all the money that you want to bring today.